0: So we've been looking uh, since the fall uh, at the book of Numbers. And one of the things that, um, uh, a big theme that we've looked at over uh, the last uh, several weeks uh, is this uh, consistent and constant grumbling that the people of God are doing. Uh, And that they are grumbling about uh, manna, they're grumbling about water. They're grumbling about the promised land. They're grumbling about Moses. They're grumbling about Aaron. Lots of grumbling, plenty of grumbling. And so it's a pretty profound thing for us to look at this. And one of the things that my wife pointed out to me this week is she, you know, d- does some stuff occasionally on uh, social media is she said, you know, hey, just so you know, the people are grumbling. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, they're, they're grumbling that, you know, that's all you've been talking about It's grumbling. And uh, they're tired of you being in numbers. It's time for you to get on to something else. That's why I'm up here and you're out there. Uh, so uh, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a funny thing, right? Because we don't think grumbling's a big deal. Uh, it's like our constitutional right to grumble. Uh, even against God, right? Um, and some of us, you know, we have cachet and coolness with one another because we're better at grumbling against God than than other people. So, I just think it's a just think it's a a fascinating thing. I, I just want to remind you: we don't have time to dig into this this morning. But when the Apostle Paul is writing about what's happening here in the wilderness in First Corinthians, he says explicitly: these words are written for us. Right. It's not just for Moses, not just for Aaron, not just for Joshua, not just for those guys, but it's for us. And so it's worth our time and energy just to stop a, a little bit and and to look into this and, and uh, think about what's going on. When when last we saw the people of God, you know, the the ground had opened up and because uh, they would complained about uh, Aaron being the only priest and his people being the only uh, people that could, uh, do the, the, uh, lead the people in worship and there was a plague. I mean, it's some pretty dark stuff. So we're gonna pick up that narrative here, uh, uh, in Numbers, uh, chapter 17 verses 1 through 13. And what God's gonna say to us in this passage and what He's gonna say, uh, to the people of God is He's gonna provide for them a means for them to stop grumbling. So let me read to you this text. It's from uh, Numbers chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And by the way, if you're, if you're not familiar with this passage, this is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. It's may, maybe, maybe, yeah, it's, it's definitely in my top ten. So, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you, and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. And the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel. (coughs) And they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Thus did Moses, as the Lord commanded him. So he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we're all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? So it's a wonderful passage, beautiful image, uh, one that is so encouraging and such a wonderful text. But you have to see what God is doing here, and and what He says it twice in this in in, in this passage. Brian, go ahead, and put put my notes up there. And and this is the thing that we have. He says twice in this passage that He wants to mercifully put an end to the grumbling of the people of God so that they won't die. Look at, let me read this to you again. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you, Moses. (coughs) And then verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me. Lest they die. So there's, some interplay there between the grumbling against Aaron and Moses and the grumbling against God, there's, there's a lot of overlap there, right? Now, <clears throat> one of the things that you have to see about this, one of the questions we have to ask of this text is, why is God so concerned about grumbling? Why? It seems like there would be other things to be more concerned about. Immorality. Coveting, anger, bitterness, <coughs> lying, cheating, stealing. Right? Why, so why, why, why isn't he more concerned about that than he's concerned about grumbling? Why, why does he say, you know what, uh, for the last, I don't know, seven, eight chapters, it's all been about grumbling. It's all been about complaining. And, and God has dealt with it in some very harsh and straightforward and yet merciful ways. And so finally he gets to this chapter and he says, you know what, I'm going to put an end to the grumbling. We're done with it. And and, and this is the way that I'm going to do it. And so so it's not just that he's going to pick the tribe and, and to clarify for everybody once and for all that it's Aaron's the priest and it's his people that are going to lead us in the worship of God. It's more than that. What he wants to do is to give them a sign and to give them something to lay hold of that once and for all is going to end their grumbling. Now, you know, the, the thing about grumbling is, grumbling is a pretty powerful force among us, right? Because we think we all have the right to do it and we think that we, we, and and when we think that grumbling might be a problem, the way we typically deal with it is like this. Like, you hear somebody grumble. And sometimes you think, you know what? i can be friends with that person because we can grumble about the same thing together in fact i know married couples that the only thing that keeps them together and the thing that they that they enjoy the most together is that they get to grumble together about the same thing right so so they might not like each other very much but they can agree that this thing or this person out here much worse we can we can we can have a Joy and love with one another because we can say that's bad. Don't you th- don't you hate that? Don't you don't you not like that person out there? So they build fellowship with one another about grumbling. So that's one way we do it. We actually find somebody who will grumble with us, and we can live in our little grumble town, right? And 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 do our little grumble thing together. Like we like that. There's lots of grumble towns. Uh, they're all over the place, right? <coughs> So that's one way we deal with it. Another way that that we deal with it uh, is, uh, and and this one this one is uh, this one's this one's kind of a, a a challenging one as well is we might have a conscience issue with grumbling. We think you know I, I really shouldn't grumble so much. I'm working on it. And then you hear somebody else grumble, and you think you know what I discount their grumbling because what I had to grumble about is much worse. They grumble about that. If they could see my life, they'd know what 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 there's something that's really worth grumbling about. Cuz I got it so much worse. I discount your grumble. Right? Now we never say that. But you can see people sometimes we one up one another, right? On the grumbling. This happened to me. Well, let me tell you about this. My power was out for 45 minutes. Well, mine was out for 48 and that three minutes made all the difference. My grumble's better than your grumble, right? Right? <coughs> so we, we have this whole thing. And then there's the other thing that happens when, when the grumble town becomes a grumble city where, you know what, it, it begins to kind of geometrically grow and we can get a lot of people together grumbling about something. Well, the, the thing about it is God sees this as something that's insidious and wicked. And terrible because all of it ultimately, from God's perspective, there's a difference between lamenting, there's a difference between going to God with our complaints, then going to one another and saying, This is just awful. They're awful, God's awful. If God was better, this wouldn't be happening, right? <coughs> so, why is he so concerned about it? Well, my friend C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Great Divorce. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. That's a, that smacks you right in the face, doesn't it? Right, right off the bat. But you, you know, even in the midst of the grumbling, you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. It should remind you a little bit of those uh, addiction center, uh, ad, you know, ads on TV like... You know, you got an addiction here. Come, come to our place, and we'll cure you the addiction. You got a grumbling addiction, right? Come on over here. We'll, we'll stop your grumbling addiction, right? You, and, and you, so you may be in a situation where you're like, yeah, you know, Steve's talking about grumbling. I don't really like that he's talking about grumbling. And I talked to ten people this week about that. I don't like that he's talking about grumbling. I wish I could stop that. But here's, and you know what? That's fine that that's not a big deal but the next sentence is the thing that is devastating there may come a day when you can no longer then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine it is not a question of god sending us so much to hell and each of us there's something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud right, right? Wow. Wow. Clive Staples, man, he's bringing heat there this morning, isn't he? I mean, that is a that's a that's a pretty, pretty profound uh, thing for him to say. And so God loves us so much that he sees this thing in us that we love more than him. And that is the grumble and that we will sink ourselves into it. And if we're not careful, one day we're going to wake up. And that's all that we are. That's all that's left. Uh, and, and it just, because, it, over time it just, it, it, it might overwhelm us and just destroy any uh, kind of sense of real spiritual life and joy in, in, in our, our lives. So God says in this text twice, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to put an end to the grumbling. I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to end it. So what is the thing that He is going to do to put an end to it? Next slide please, Brian. He uses the miracle of the living, flowering, and fruitful rod of Aaron to demonstrate this. Out of all the things that he could do, and out of all the things that he could uh try to get the people to stop grumbling, he does this. So what he says is Moses go to the people and 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 each one of the chiefs of the tribes are to bring a stick. And they're supposed to take this stick and we're gonna write everybody's, you know, a name of the of the each tribe on the stick. And then we're going to put the stick in the sanctuary, and uh, he tells Moses what's going to happen. Aaron's stick is going to to, uh, blossom and bloom, right? Now, the thing that I think about this is, I think, you know, if I were God, how might I have done this differently? Because this kind of reminds me a little bit of the story in Genesis of Joseph. Remember Joseph, the spoiled brat? Now, remember Joseph, who is his father's favorite, and he goes out to his brothers, and they're out working. Joseph's not working. Joseph goes out to his brothers, and they're tying up the grain, and Joseph says, hey, fellas, I had a dream last night. Let me share that with you. It was a great dream. It was a really good dream. Now, if you have siblings, you know we're, the train's starting to get off the track here a little bit. And it's going to get worse. We were out in the field and we were tying up the grain and I tied mine up and it stood up right. And all of yours stood around it and bowed down to mine. Isn't that a great dream? Don't you think? Don't you don't, don't you wish you had dreams like that? Right? And then he goes on to say, and you know what? I had another dream and there, there was the sun and the moon, you know, mom and dad and they're... They're bowing down to me and all the other stars, you know, they're they're bowing down to to my story. Don't you think that's cool? I mean, why doesn't God say, you know, we're going to put everybody's stick in here and Aaron's stick is going to be standing upright and everybody else's stick is going to be laying in the ground. That seems like a good way to do it. Or if it was really the way to do it, the way I would do it is Aaron's stick is standing there and everybody else's is broken into pieces so that we're clear who's the boss, right? Right? But what happens is God does this miracle. And it's not just the miracle that he takes a dead stick and makes leaves grow on it. He takes a dead stick and makes it leaf, makes it bloom, bud, and produce fruit. All of the cycles of life right there at once. And he does it, he uses as that an almond tree. Now, why an almond tree? Almonds are getting are big in America now. Did you know that? When I was a kid, you could go to any house in America and they would have... A giant jar about this big of JFG peanut butter. That was how we did it. Giant. Remember those, those great big, because everybody had peanut butter. Now, peanut butter, uncool. Uncool. We want almond butter, right? So now, all the healthy people have almond butter. And did you know that you can milk an almond? Who knew that, right? Apparently you can because you go you go in the grocery store and there's there's almond milk. What is that, right? <laughs> Who knew, right? So they're a big deal in America now, right? The almonds are everywhere now. Now some of you are are offended by almonds because you know that it takes a gallon of water to produce one almond. Do you know that? I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but I was told that once, that, you know, you shouldn't eat almonds because it takes a gallon of water to produce one. And I'm like, ah, you know, I can think of a lot of reasons. Uh, uh, that's a good use of a gallon of water. That almond's so good, especially when it's roasted with a little salt. Yeah, I'm for that. So why why an almond tree? Why 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 is that? Well, first of all, one of the things you have to realize is, this is not the only almond tree in the tabernacle. There's already one in there. Did you know that? Don't have time to read it, but if you go back and you look at Exodus uh, chapter twenty-five, verses thirty-one through forty, in the description of the lampstand that's shining the light on the table of the bread, it's an it's an almond tree. Did you know that? It's an almond tree, and it's it's there as a, a means to to reflect the light upon the blessing of God and the provision of God for his people. And so, so what God's doing here is he's saying, listen, you know, I am for you. I am with you in every stage of this. I will bless you. I will provide for you. And it's not just that Aaron's stick is the one that's fruitful. It's that I took Aaron's dead stick and I made it bloom and I made it bud, and I made it blossom, and here it is producing fruit, and it is a wonderful and it is a beautiful thing, right? And so, so the, the the fact of this is is it's not just that God's saying I made his his rod bloom, and the other one's not. It's I made his bloom, and what you need to see about that is is that I am blessing you and providing for you and giving you life. Next slide, please, Brian. So, so what are we to gather from this? Well, here's the thing. Without the work of Jesus, I am a dead stick. That's it. And that's true of all of us. You and I are dead sticks. Now, if you're like me, you've become very well acquainted with dead sticks in your yard. In the last couple of days, right? Lots of dead sticks. What do you do with dead sticks? You gather them up. And when the wind stops blowing at my house, I burn them. That's what dead sticks are good for. To be burned. I'm a dead stick. Unless God in his mercy and in his miraculous power causes me to live. I'm dead. The Bible's not kidding when it says you're dead in trespasses and sins until God does his work in you. So um, this, this may be hard for us to think, you know, it's, it's hard to hear you're a dead stick, right, without the work of God. Uh, but with the work of God, you are a blooming, fruitful thing that bears witness to the mercy and love of God. This week, uh, my friend Phil Scott uh, drove me uh, back to my mom and dad's house to pick up the last couple of things that we needed to get out of the house before we sell it. And there's something you know when when you do this, and many of you have done this. One of the things that you have to do when you're going back to your parents' house, you know, and I've been doing it a lot lately, is as you get close, you have to, you know, begin to prepare yourself because you're going to go into their house and they're not in there, right? Uh, And so I'm preparing myself to do that, get myself together. We pull in to get the stuff out of the house and we start taking stuff out. And I'm kind of, you know, kind of lost in my thoughts and stuff as we're carrying the stuff out of the house. and And a car pulls up in front of the house. This is the great thing about being in a small town is that people see you taking stuff out of somebody's house, they're going to come by and see what's going on, you know. So I'm like, oh gee, am I going to have to get arrested here to explain why I'm taking this furniture out of this dead man's house? You know, what, what's going to happen here? The guy gets out of the car, and I recognize him. He's an elder from uh, from my dad's church. And he comes up, and we greet each other. We talk for a little bit, and he said, uh, "I, uh, I was changed by your dad's funeral service. And I want to know the last hymn that we sang at his service because we're going to sing it at church. And of course, he didn't have a piece of paper with him to write the title down. He just had wrote it on his hand. And so I'm like, well, I, I hope your palms don't sweat because, you know, it would be bad to get the wrong hymn, you know, great, encouraging moment. So we go back in the house, we're cleaning stuff up. We're in the garage I hear a knock on the front door and I go to the front door and there's this guy. I've spoken about him before that there were times when I would go walking with my dad in town and we would see this guy on his bicycle who's obviously, if he's not homeless, he's close to homeless. And my dad would let him pick food out of his garden to get him something to eat. And so the guy's standing there on the porch and we're talking and he's like, you're his boy, right? I said, yes. And he's like, well, where is he? I said, well, he's in heaven. And he's really moved by that and, uh, you know, talked about how dad blessed him and was merciful to him and that kind of stuff. And then he said, you know, I noticed in the backyard that there's some old collard greens back there. Now, these are collard greens that had come up, died, receded themselves and come up again back in his garden because dad hadn't gardened in a year and a half. And he looked at me and he said, can I have those? And I'm like, sure. He's like, you know, and I thought, you know, if dad were here, dad would be telling him to go back there to get him. And so he goes back there and he's picking them. And Phil turns and looks at me and he says, well, I hope he really cooks those greens down a lot because I don't think that guy has any teeth. <laughs> how's, how's he going to eat that? And I'm like, well, he's got one. I saw it. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I was I was staring at it the whole time he was, he, was, he was talking to me. My dad was a dead stick that Jesus made beautiful. I can't think of anything better that could be said of any one of us. Right? Right? I mean, in the end, isn't that the thing that we rest our hearts and our lives on? I was a dead stick and Jesus made me beautiful, but not only made me beautiful, but made me bloom and made me fruitful and made me a picture and a reminder before the people of God that God raises the dead and that he takes dead sticks and makes something beautiful and productive and glorious out of them. You see, that's the thing. That's why God chooses this particular instrument to say to the people of God, look at the stick that's producing the fruit, stop murmuring and complaining and grumbling. So so the, so the the point of this is that God is, doesn't say just stop your grumbling, stop your murmuring. He holds up before them a picture of his character and his life and the work that he does in bringing life to dead sticks. And he says, look at that. And if you look at that and you see that, your need for grumbling goes away. <coughs> the Apostle Paul said to us, Look at the cross. How is it that God gave his own son for us? If he did that, how is it that he will withhold anything that we need? So when I see the provision of God, when I see the life giving work of Jesus Christ for me, and when I even see the fact that he takes dead sticks and makes them alive and fruitful, I don't grumble. I don't murmur. Those things are taken away from me because I see the mercy and the goodness and the power of God to raise the dead, to take that which is not and make it something, to take that which is dead and broken and useless and only good for burning, but by his power, by his work, by his Holy Spirit, taking the work of Jesus Christ and applying it to that dead stick makes it come alive and makes it wonderful and beautiful. So we hear this and we think, you know, what should happen here is when the people are standing there and they're looking at this beautiful stick that's blooming, that what we think they're going to do is they're like, oh, man, the pressure's off. Thanks. We don't have to grumble. But what do they do? And the people of Israel said to Moses, "Whoa! behold, we perish. We're undone. We're all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to Perish. That happens, doesn't it? Oftentimes when God's grace and his mercy is on display, we think it should make everybody take a deep breath and relax. But sometimes, particularly with the guilty, it goes the opposite. The scriptures tell us that God forgives sin and therefore he is to be feared, right? Jesus calms the storm in a massive power of a demonstration of the power of grace and care for his disciples and they're undone. God's grace is on display. He takes dead sticks and makes them beautiful and the people are scared to death, right? So what's God going to say to that? Is he going to say, listen, I gave you the the stick. (laughs) You know, look at the stick. It's going to be okay. Well, the very next chapter begins with uh, the Lord's response. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons, Get on about the business of being the priest. In other words, what God is saying here by not answering this is saying, look at the stick. I've, I've done enough. I'm not going to address your your crazy fears. And, and, and all you got to do is look at the stick and we're going to get up and we're going to go on about life. <laughs> we're going we're to go on about doing the stuff that we're supposed to do. The sun's going to keep coming up. I'm going to keep being your God. We're going to keep working this thing out and I'm going to get you to the promised land, right? Sometimes the silence of God to our crazy uh, fears and anxieties about these things, after he has spoken so clearly and demonstrated so profoundly his grace and his mercy is, he just goes on about business. So that as time goes on, we see and we live and we taste and we experience his goodness and grace, that that ultimately, over time, is what will allay our crazy fears and anxieties? You see, our God makes dead sticks into beautiful, blooming, fruitful, fruitful trees. The disciples prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, Jesus.